Now we have a, a bit of a surprise. I'm really looking forward to this because it's something I've been praying for for years, and it's finally come to pass. And um, we're going to have a baptism. And um, baptism is a time when you express to others your faith in Christ. And you make a declaration saying, I've died with Christ, and now I'm risen with him. And I want him to be my life. And it's, it's a public declaration of that, of that statement. It's also, in, in the early church, it was like entrance into the body of believers because it declared to everyone your faith. And, and you, could, you could be killed for expressing your faith like that. So it's a very special and important thing. And uh, we're so glad this morning for this baptism that's about to take place. But I'm not going to do it. I think her father should do it. Boy, that's uh, <clears throat> give me a moment to get my composure here. <laughs> my wife was just telling me that, and I was like, no, she didn't say anything to me about it. <laughs> oh, come on, my girl. This is, uh, uh, we would say, as Paula said, something we have been praying for for quite, for quite some time. We're absolutely thrilled that the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection has just made its, uh, what is it, made its way into her heart. <laughs> so we are just absolutely thrilled to death. Um, I don't say I had the uh, great privilege of, uh, <clears throat> as as a pastor before, to uh, baptize both of my boys into the death of Christ, so that they could be raised in the newness of life. And I'm thrilled this morning. Sorry for the tears. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know until had come up here. <laughs> so, hallelujah. I will uh, hand this over to Marco, and then uh, I will project. Wow. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> so, Nelly, please stand up just for just one moment here. Sorry about that. Uh, do you have a, a word of testimony at all that you'd like to share? No? And so I'll just ask you the basic question. Nelly, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? And do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And that he alone is your justification this morning? Hallelujah. So Nelly, I would just like to come stand for just a moment longer. I just want to say that by your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my great honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.
glory to God. He has set her and all of us free. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Stand with us. Let's worship. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What's like a burning prison? Freedom, you have given us freedom. 
name that hearts can be changed and transformed and renewed and set free. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done in each one of us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you hear us when we call upon your name. And thank you that every prayer that we have prayed, Lord, you have kept. And thank you for answered prayer. We just bless your great, wonderful, beautiful, powerful name this morning. For you deserve it all. And all of God's children said, Amen and Amen. Today we are in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. If you're a guest with us this morning, we, we go through a book of the Bible, one passage at a time, and I try to explain it so that we thoroughly understand it and, and have some application for our own lives. And so you happen to have joined us today. Uh, we're kind of past the middle of Galatians. It's um, 
It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church at Galatia. And he's, he's just really shocked that, of the news that they've turned away from what he calls his gospel, meaning the gospel of grace, that it's salvation is by faith alone, um, by grace alone, through faith alone, and that they are listening to these false teachers who are trying to tell them that they have to be circumcised to be saved. So this, is, this letter is an attempt to get them to come to their senses. And in it, he has tried to convince them by sharing that um, his own testimony, his personal testimony, which is an incredible picture of grace, how he's on his way to persecute believers, and the risen Lord shows up and, and calls him and talk about uh, totally by grace, my goodness. The killer of Christians uh, becomes the Apostle Paul, who's sharing the gospel around the world and probably the biggest church planner in the first century. And after that, he then showed them the scriptures, how historically throughout the Old Testament, salvation has always been by grace through faith. He used Abraham as an example. And uh, he explained that the promise to Abraham was that his descendant, Jesus, would bless the world through faith, uh, through, that, through that one descendant, having faith in that descendant, would bless the world. And so um, even though the law came after that, the law doesn't nullify that previous promise that God was going to bless the world through the descendant of Abraham. And earlier in this chapter, he explained that the law was a guardian. It was kind of like a a director keeping us in line until grace came, until uh, that promised heir, Jesus, came into the world. But now we no longer need that tutor. We're no longer under the law, and we're free to follow the Holy Spirit and let Christ live in us. That's the freedom that he's writing about in this letter. And I've titled this sermon and next week also Freedom. This is part one. And I want to begin with um, a quote from Pastor Todd Wilson. He, he introduced this passage in the following way. He writes, Freedom comes to those who hear God's word and respond with obedient faith. Jesus puts it this way, If you abide in me and, my, and in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christians, however, easily forget this truth. We may affirm a love for the Bible and yet fail to listen to what it says, or, or we articulate a desire to obey Scripture, and yet we remain ignorant of its teaching. And as a result, a very sad and potentially dangerous situation can develop. A person can think he's gaining greater and greater freedom because of his fidelity to the Bible, and actually, he's plunging himself deeper and deeper into a bondage of self-deception because of his ignorance of the Bible. This was the mistake of the Pharisees. Presuming to be mighty in scriptures, they were pseudo-biblical at best. Recall how Jesus chided them for their dutiful obedience to the law that was little more than sophisticated effort to downplay, if not altogether avoid, the real heart of the law. To be sure, the Pharisees could strain out the exegetical gnats with the best of them. The problem is, in the process, they ended up swallowing camels whole. Instead of this legal, that's the end of the quote, instead of this legal obedience to the word, we need a knowledge of God's word that's directed and illumined by the Holy Spirit. Amen? lest we become legalists. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read our passage for today, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham has two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is, the, in, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Amen. You can be seated. So our text today continues Paul's argument from Scripture, but in an allegorical way. And while this was a common practice among Hebrews in the first century to preach allegorically, to, and, and many times throughout history, it's, it's kind of become popular at times, it's probably the most abused method of preaching that there is when it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul's knowledge of the scriptures and his willingness to let the Holy Spirit teach him gave him some, some really rich insights, and this, this passage today is one of those. He could see God's patterns behind the stories of scripture. Jesus' parables are a form of allegory from fictional stories, though usually based on often on actual events, to practical applications in life. And we can be sure that they're inspired from biblical themes as Jesus said, he only spoke what the Father showed him. In a similar way, Paul was so steeped in scripture, so full of the Holy Spirit, that we can be sure his allegory is inspired. He took the biblical account of Sarah and Hagar to illustrate a point he saw throughout scripture. And this is the important point in making an allegory from Scripture. It has to be in accord with Scripture. It has to give the message that's in line with other Scripture. And only then can we be sure we're being accurate and not doing violence to the intended meaning of the passage. Um, uh, my, a book in the foyer, Jesus Concealed in the Old Testament, has numerous allegories from Old Testament characters that prefigure Jesus Christ. And I was comfortable making the point because Jesus said the law and the prophets were about him in Luke 24, 44. Paul is sure that this allegory is faithful to God's word because of the scriptural proofs he's given already in this letter and, and he gives throughout the book of Romans. Verse 20, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul's going to use this allegorical reading of Sarah and Hagar to teach the Gentiles who were considering being circumcised in an effort to please God. He's trying to help them see that we are only free from the laws of Moses when we receive the promise by faith. He started out by saying, okay, you want the law? Then listen to what the law is teaching us. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized he'd missed the very heart of Scripture, that the Messiah would suffer for our sins and that faith in God's provision is the only means of being right with God. And now he sees the Galatians missing that same truth that he had missed, and he desires for them to see what he saw in God's word. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by a free woman. To understand Paul's allegory, we have to have a, a basic understanding of the account of Abraham and Sarah. It's a fascinating story. Genesis, the book of Genesis, is an incredible book of dramas. 
actual accounts, historical accounts of people, and some, some of the stories are very dramatic. This one is, is one of those really dramatic ones. God promised this, this man Abraham, who he'd called out of this pagan city of Ur and called to the promised land, he promised him that he would multiply him into a great nation. But as he grew older, and as his wife Sarah was past the time of conceiving, she resorted to a common practice at the time, and that is to have a child through her servant. So she asked Abraham if he wouldn't bear a child through her so she could have, in a sense, an adopted child that would become the heir of all their possessions and the rights and privileges they had. And so instead of trusting God to bring about the promise, Abraham agreed and had a child through Hagar. But years later, God told Abraham that it was Sarah through whom the son of promise would come. Now, while God was speaking to him, uh, he came in a physical form with two angels. He appeared at the tent of Abraham, and Abraham, being Hebrew, uh, showed hospitality by welcoming them, giving them water and food, and then God, the scripture says Yahweh in Hebrew, talk, talking to him. In other words, there is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking with Abraham. Why do I say that? Because in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the image of the invisible God is Jesus Christ, Paul wrote. We cannot see God the Father. He's a spirit. But the manifestation of the invisible God is Jesus. So the visible God, who is Jesus Christ, was speaking with Abraham and telling him that son from Ishmael, the son of Hagar, Hagar, is not going to be the one, the son of promise. It's going to come through your wife. Now, Sarah's behind the tent flap listening, and she starts laughing. She's 90 years old. She's going... I'm going to have a child? Yeah, right. And the Lord says to her through the tent flap, why are you laughing, Sarah? Is anything too hard for the Lord? About this time next year, you will have a child. And she did. So really, the last laugh was on Sarah, right? You know, even the Jews recognize that there is a being in the Old Testament who's referred to as, as God, but is in physical form. And they don't know how to explain it, so they call this one the Prince of the Countenances. In other words, he is uh, the face of God to people. Well, we know his name, amen? Hallelujah. In fact, Proverbs 31 asks us that question, do you know his name or do you know his son's name? Yes, we do. Amen. Hallelujah. It's been revealed. Sarah did have a son and she named him Isaac. And the son of the slave woman of, of Hagar, whose his name was Ishmael, was years older than Isaac. And when uh, little Isaac was being weaned, they threw a party and a celebration of him being weaned. And Sarah saw Ishmael mocking him, saying, ha, oh, he's finally off the breast. He's a little runt, you know, just making fun of him. And Sarah went to Abraham and said, you have to make them leave. She's not going to take kindly to Isaac being the heir. And this is going to be a lot of problems. And it broke Abraham's heart because he loved Ishmael. But he followed her advice and sent them out. Verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The conception of Ishmael was completely natural, but the conception of Isaac was miraculous. It was faith in God's promise, and it came about by divine initiative, not by man's efforts. In Matthew 3, 9, John the Baptist refutes natural heritage but 
being anything special to God because he said God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Now, I don't think he meant, I may be wrong, but I don't think he meant literally God was going to turn the stone into a human being. I think he was referring back to the miraculous conception of Isaac, the, the ovaries in, in, uh, in Sarah might as well have been rocks because they were dead. There was no life there. But God brought life from, the, from something that wasn't living. Now, that was shocking to Jews in John's day because Jews then believed everybody who was born from, through Isaac's line would be inheritors of the kingdom of God. So they found it very insulting that he would say that to them. But Jesus confirms it as well because Jesus said to the crowd in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, speaking to Jews. In other words, you're not even a part of the kingdom. You're not children of God just because you're natural descendants from Abraham. Natural heritage has nothing to do with our relationship with God. Everyone is born into this world in a fallen condition. We all inherit the fallen nature of Adam. Jesus said the one who practices sin is a slave of sin. And that sets up this allegory now that Paul's using. Ishmael was born naturally and represents fallen man. Isaac was miraculously born and represents those who are born again through the promise, which is the promise God gave Abraham to bless the world through one born from Isaac's lineage, which is Christ Jesus. One was born a slave, the other was born free. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. In Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul extrapolates from these two kinds of sons. One was physically, naturally, natural birth as a slave. The other through promise, by grace, through faith. One, the work of natural man. The other, the work of God. Paul then makes another analogy. Hagar as a slave is used as a symbol for the law given on Mount Sinai, which, by the way, Jews spoke of the yoke of the law because it required human effort and is what we're naturally born under. Slaves are told what to do, what not to do. And that's what the law does. And the Mount Sinai area at the time was inhabited by the sons of Ishmael who were known also as the sons of Hagar. We're all born like Ishmael. We all start off as slaves under the law of do's and don'ts, right? Our parents tell us, don't do this, do that, don't do this, no. And one of the first words the children learn, no, right? They say it back to mommy and daddy, no, <laughs> right? Because we're under the law. We don't have the spirit, just as in the illustration here. Paul then connects that with Jerusalem that is under the bondage to the old covenant. Those living in Jerusalem were trying to live under that, that uh, what he called earlier the tutor, the yoke of the law, obligated by human effort to obey the civil and religious rules of the law. Verse 26, but Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Human initiative only produces human results. Try as we may, we will fail to live to God's standards and therefore we will never be right with God or have inner peace by our own effort. But there's also the city of peace for those who are born again, according to the promise by faith, the heavenly Jerusalem. Like Isaac, these who are born again, according to the promise by faith, um, are born supernaturally. It includes people of faith who've gone before us. This is the church that we're talking about and our mother, so to speak. In this allegory, she represents the, is represented by the princess, Sarah, 
As the bride of Christ, we love Jesus. And that results in new believers whom we are, are we share with and nurture and bring to maturity in Christ. You know, I've, I've been asked several times uh, by feminists, where is the mother in the Godhead? Where is the woman? Well, she's not a part of the Godhead, but she's the helpmeet by marriage. She's still being prepared for the wedding, sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. The world doesn't like that word submission, but followers of Jesus know the joy and the fulfillment found in submitting to Christ, our loving Lord. Paul explained in the letter to the Ephesians that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, which consists of all those who believe by faith, the inheritors of the promise given to Abraham. Verse 27, for it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than, than those of the one who has a husband. Isaiah 54 verse 1 is quoted here by Paul to show that the people of faith are reproducing others of faith. They may have died without a husband or physical children, but they're spiritually productive. There are two women in this quote. The barren one ended up with more children, just in the, as in the case of Sarah. It was partially fulfilled in the return to the promised land, but there's a greater fulfillment under the new covenant as the church of God expands throughout the world. So a lot of times we ask, who's your daddy? How about who's your mama? Right? Is it the world or is it the church? Are you slave or free? In our submission to our Lord and his words, we find real freedom. Jesus' last words on earth instructed us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. Life in Jesus, obeying his words, brings freedom from the old nature, freedom from the bondage of, of sin and the fear of judgment. It's also freedom from the Jewish laws to do God's will at the leading of the Spirit and to lead others to that freedom. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So here's the application for the Galatians that he's, that he's sharing with. And for all of us who try to be right with God merely by, by doing good works or good deeds, we can be like Isaac, born spiritually, miraculously by faith in God's promise, into a new life, the life of Christ in us. The promises throughout the Old Testament came to pass in Jesus and the new covenant in his blood. And by faith, we accept the truth of those promises, receive forgiveness, and were miraculously born anew, children of the promise. In saying this, Paul was expressing faith that the brothers and sisters in Galatia who are reading this letter though presently misled by false teachers, were going to receive what he was writing to them and return to faith in the all-sufficiency of what Jesus had done for them. Verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The Jews who lived under the law at that time were persecuting those born of the Spirit, the Christian community. It was the Jews who used Rome to kill apostles and harass them. They would have killed them themselves if allowed, and sometimes they did anyway. Remember in Paul's old life as Saul, his execution of Stephen in the book of Acts, as well as his mission to round up Christians and drag them off to prison. Ishmael was the half-brother of Isaac, so also our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church, attack us. You know, the greatest th threat, I believe, to the gospel today isn't from Islam. It, doesn't, it comes from denominational leaders and seminaries that have turned faith into merely good works of man while denying the inspiration of scripture 
and salvation through the atoning work of Jesus alone on the cross. They inoculate people against the truth of salvation by faith in Christ by presenting a watered-down gospel that basically says, be good, be kind to everyone, and you'll probably go to heaven. They call us fanatics and radicals, literalists, Bible thumpers, uneducated, of course, because we don't follow their criticisms of scripture. But you know what? I take it as a badge of honor to be called a Bible thumper. I've been called a born-againer. Hallelujah. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be exceeding glad, because that's what they did to the prophets before you. I think it's partly because we make them aware of their sin and it makes them uncomfortable. Not always by words, sometimes just by being who we are. And that's the first step towards salvation, becoming aware of our sin. Now, I'm not implying that we should harshly be confrontational, but we should always speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Again, he's quoting, this, he's quoting from that story in Genesis. Though Ishmael is loved, which the Bible makes clear in, in Genesis, God allowed him to be cast out with Hagar as Sarah wished, for he was not to have any inheritance that God promised to Isaac. And Paul's really, I think he's, he's, he's going a little deeper if you read behind the scenes here, Paul's calling for the Galatians to remove the false teacher from their fellowship. It's a warning to us to see that our faith in what Christ has done for us is genuine. None of us wants to hear for ourselves or any of those we love in the body of Christ to, to hear on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. Those to whom Jesus spoke these words said they had done mighty works in Jesus' name. But that's where religious works end up on the final day. The Jews applied the casting out of Ishmael to the Gentiles. They took it as an allegory of the Gentiles be cast, being cast out. But Ishmael was the son of Abraham. Paul made a new application by saying it applies to all who are not born again of faith, a miraculous supernatural birth, which includes many Jews. In other words, the believers in Galatia needed to cast out the Judaizers who were proclaiming works as a means of salvation. And if they did not, the Judaizers would prevail in influencing the church to rely on works rather than on God and what Christ had done for them. And this problem will always be with us. Men and women have what they think are good ideas that every Christian must do if they're real Christians. And pastors come up with these methods that they, they call their vision, and they try to get the church to get on board with doing some good thing. But what can come out of the works of the flesh except fleshly results? It may look good on the outside, but there's no fruit that remains. There's busyness, there's sacrifice, but if it's not at the direction of the spirit, it's a temporal thing and therefore meaningless at best. Only things brought about by God's initiative, led by the spirit, moving the hearts of believers, Christ through us produces fruit that remains. And our last verse, verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Amen? Hallelujah. We are like Isaac, a child that is a product of faith, persecuted, mocked, and but destined to inherit all things, seeking a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God, heavenly Jerusalem. Later in this letter, Paul calls us the Israel of God. That's chapter 6, verse 16. This all boils down to works or grace through faith. Every other religion is focused on works, which is man-dependent. True Christianity is Jesus-dependent. Amen?
I heard one little wimpy amen. I want to hear amen. amen. Yes. Hallelujah. Thank God it's so. You, you know, sometimes I think about the importance of this when you see a child that's born with disabilities. It is so easy to come to faith in Christ that even a disabled child that even doesn't have all his faculties can understand Jesus loves me, this I know, and can accept him by faith. We count on the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross and not our own goodness. But then we also experience the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do by the power of his spirit. He does those good works through us. We operate in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. Freedom that Jesus and Paul are talking about is knowing the truth and letting it guide us. It's letting the Holy Spirit lead us into a, it's really an, a life of adventure as Christ lives in us and through us. It's the assurance that our sin debt is paid in full. It's being who God created us to be as we mature into the likeness of our Savior and our Lord Christ Jesus. And right now, you know, for those in Afghanistan, it's not being afraid to die. To know where, for sure that you know where you're going, regardless of what's done to your body. What freedom is that? That's probably the greatest freedom. You know, in Hebrews it says that people are all their lifetime subject to the fear of death until we come to Christ and know that it's taken care of. We can know where we're going. We can have that assurance. And that gives peace that passes understanding. Amen? Amen. Let's close with prayer. Mm. Again, Lord, we just lift up our brothers and sisters there and pray that assurance is stro so strong in them. And that when our time comes, we'll have this incredible peace that comes from knowing you and knowing you've made us right with the Father, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel is by grace through faith. And we thank you too, Lord, that you, you plan good works in advance to do through us. Help us, Lord, to yield to your Holy Spirit that when those opportunities come, we sense the nudging of your Spirit and we step out in faith and do things that are, we know beyond ourselves, but we know nothing is too hard for you. So thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for the truth it reveals to us. Thank you for the freedom we have in you. Thank you today for Nellie's baptism. Thank you for the new members that have become a part of this church body. Lord, guide us throughout this week and let us let you have all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And now may God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you.